0: I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I would confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin Therefore, let everyone who is God in you offer prayer to you at a time that you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I, instru- I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with and bitten and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You, God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would come now and visit us in your spirit and help us to hear your word, to apply your word, to understand it, to make it part of our lives. Your word is living and active and sharper than any of swords. So, Lord, come and pray and speak through me. Open our ears to hear the truths that you would have for us to say. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. For those who don't know me, I'm Jim am the interim pastor here at the Story Community Church, and just glad uh, to have you here, here at Visitor, uh, this Sunday, glad that you're here with us worshiping. Uh, I met a few of you this morning, and just thankful thankful uh, for all of you here uh, that can come out to worship um, the Creator of Heaven, or our Creator, uh, on a Sunday morning that's beautiful the nice outside. So, thank you for being here. We're going to continue our series um in the book of Psalms, uh, I call this series the Psalms of Life, because really the Psalms speak about what it is, sort of the essence of uh, what it means to be human. Uh, we're looking today at Psalm 32, which scholars tend to classify either as a wisdom psalm or a thanksgiving psalm, and some scholars put together as both a combination of those two things. So and that's sort of how I, I see this psalm as well. It's both wisdom and thanksgiving jumping together. Uh, the early church included this psalm as one of the seven penitential psalms. Uh, they are considered penitential, of course, because they express deep sorrow for sin and repentance, deep sorrow of our own sin, of our own struggles in life, um, and how we fall short of God. These psalms are often recited and meditated upon during times of personal reflection, confession, and just through seeking forgiveness. And I would encourage us as a church Remember Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and, and the others, and use them on a regular basis in your time of confession, in the time of coming before God, being reminded of our sin and laying bare our hearts to Him, the sin that we often hold or hide or try to up. I want to say before going into getting into the sermon more deeply, is that uh, for full disclosure, uh, those who know H.O. H.O. preached on this sermon uh, three years ago. And I'm borrowing the frame of the sermon from Abe. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. preached in Psalm 32, these are my words. Uh, but the framework is coming from Abe and I want to give him uh, ownership of that. And that. That is not my framework, this is Abe's sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at the New York East Harlem if uh, you want to look him up sometime. Uh, several years back, several years back, I read the classic Russian novel, A Crime and Punishment, Punishment by Dostoevsky. This novel followed the life of Raskolnikov, a young and impoverished former student who lived in St. Petersburg, Russia. Raskolnikov believed in the idea of this extraordinary man who was above the law and could commit crimes for the greater good. In an attempt to prove his theory and, of course, to escape poverty, he planned and carried out the murder of a moneylender, an older woman, in his community. However, the murder didn't go as planned, and he not only killed the older woman, he also killed her half-sister. Now, Raskolnikov commits murder with the idea that he possessed enough intellectual and emotional fortitude to deal with the ramifications of his actions. But his sense of guilt soon overwhelmed him to the point of psychological and somatic illnesses. He is consumed by guilt and paranoia which intensifies evermore as he tries to invade something capture. His guilt is depicted as a powerful and haunting force influencing his actions, his thoughts, and even his relationships. And as the novel forget- progresses, Roskolakov's R- R- guilt drives him to the edge of madness until he eventually confesses to the crime. Through his journey in this novel, not to the novel explores the psychological and moral consequences of crime, the nature of guilt, and the possibility of redemption through acceptance of responsibility for one's actions. Today, much of Western society is like Raskolnikov. That is, a, we have an issue with guilt. If you read anything in, with psychology or call anything in psychology today, you'll know particularly those uh, generally younger than me really, really are struggling with guilt and shame within our culture. I would say in many cases it's an epi- of epidemic proportions. You see it everywhere in the culture. Uh, there's an article by Wilford McClay, I guess if I get his name correctly, who is a historian and is a scholar of culture, and he wrote a fascinating article in the funniest name the review I've ever heard, called the Hedgehog Review, uh, about the strange persistence of guilt. He says those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence underestimates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the light of the contemporary West. In the same article, he also noted that Sigmund Freud believed that the tenacious sense of guilt to be the most important problem in the development of civilization. Freud said the price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of a sense of guilt. Now, Freud correctly diagnosed the coming problem it's just that his treatment for the problem was misplaced. He sought to demoralize guilt by treating it as strictly subjective and emotional matter, which means that we just have to learn to cope with it. That is, guilt wasn't associated with, a, with an objective reality, it was simply something in of us that we need to learn to deal with. Unfortunately, this is meant that over the last 100 years or so, we have slowly lost the words and framework to talk about guilt and to truly deal with it, um, individually and within our society and culture. If religion often gets the blame for framing man as a sinner, then the secular effort to release man from his guilt has offered very little relief. We now come to Psalm 32, which shows us the blessing of forgiveness and the biblical way of dealing with guilt and sin. As we look at this Psalm, I want us us to see three things today. I want us to see the heaviness of guilt, the desire for relief from sin, from guilt, and the praise and thanksgiving that we give to God because of the forgiveness from guilt from sin that we receive. This Psalm, Psalm 32, opens just like Psalm 1 with the word blessed, right? The idea here is that happy, because blessed, if you translate blessed, does it mean anything to us anymore than this, or blessed? That means the happy the happy wife or the happy person. So the idea here is that happy is the person whose sin is forgiven. The happy person is the one who has a clean heart and a clean record. Now keep in mind that this song is addressed to you. It's addressed automatically. The song is addressed to sinners. It's addressed to us who have sinned. There's no one on the face of this planet who cannot come and confess this song because we are all sinners, and that's where the psalm starts. But it starts with, blesses the man who is forgiven. Now I want you to remember that. We're gonna come back to these two thoughts at the end of this sermon. The psalm continues by providing three different terms to show us the dimensions of human evil, the dimensions of sinfulness. So the first term David uses in the psalm is transgression, which means something means rebellion, that is refusing to submit to rightful authority. God has ordained certain constraints or certain limits for human behavior, both for our good and for the good of culture, for the good of society. When we go against those limits, when we go against those those constraints, we transgress, we refuse, in essence, to subject ourselves, to submit ourselves to God and His ways. The next term David uses is sin, which means to miss the mark. We've all heard this before. Transgression, while transgression looks at the violation of a known law, Sin looks at coming short, coming up short to that ball. So it's not like that, you've, heard the, you've all heard that idea that sin is shooting the arrow and missing the mark. It's, just, it's not just that we miss the mark, we fall well short of the mark. We fall well short of the mark of God's standard. Lastly, David uses the term iniquity, meaning bent or twisted. It has the nuance of per, uh, perverting, that which is right or erring. From, from the right way, or being heir from the right way. The point David is making is sin is pervasive and can lead to great heaviness or guilt, separation, and even physical deterioration. These words for sin condemn us all as guilty before God and needing forgiveness that only God can ultimately provide for you. In verse 3, we're told what happened to David when he kept silent regarding sin. Look at what the text says. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand? God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sacked as in the heat of summer. Did you notice David never mentioned the sin that's him down. He doesn't even give us a hint. Now, historically, the church has looked at Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and and have categorized the Psalms as as David's sin against Bathsheba, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. But notice in the text, we don't have any clue as to what sin David is talking about. And I think the reason for that is, is because David's focus isn't on his sin, it's on God's forgiveness for him. And I think that's an important distinction to make. We need to acknowledge our sin, of course, but we need to be reminded and remember that ultimately our sins to be brought before our Heavenly Father so that we can be forgiven. And so his focus is on the forgiveness of God. His sin, that is David's sin, doesn't affect or impact God's capacity for, for, for forgiveness. After his sin, David said, I kept silent," which is why his problems ultimately worsened for him. Look at how David's sin weighs on him because of his son's. He writes, my bones wasted away. Guilt ravages a person physically, not just emotionally. We know this clearly today as we understand how our body impacts our minds and how our minds impact our body. They're intricately linked together. Unconfessed sin can detrimentally impact us because of the guilt we bear and can lead to depression as well as other health issues David goes on to say that he is groaning all day long. His soul is experiencing unrelenting unrelenting anguish over his unconfessed sin. Then David ends in verse 4 with a feeling of God being far from him. All David can feel of God is his his displeasure. The heaviness of the hand of God is on him until ultimately all enjoyment of life for David is lost. Life for him has been transformed into an arid and dry landscape. His guilt has overwhelmed him to the point that there is no joy in this world for him. This is what happens, or this is what can happen, when we choose not to talk about the reality of our sin, or we try to act as if our sin does not really impact us or even others. Sin is destructive. It can lead us to think we need to hide it, we're going to to cover it up. So we run from it or we look for other ways to find relief from it. The reason for that is that we cannot carry the heaviness of our shame. We are not made to carry the heaviness of our guilt. Guilt inevitably will crush our souls and eventually our bodies as well. So we have to do something with it. We must figure out a way to unload this guilt. And the thing is, we've gotten pretty good at figuring out short-term fixes for dealing with our guilt. We're pretty good at figuring out these short-term ways of hiding our sin, or hiding our guilt, or hiding our shame. Sorry, I'm on a different medication. It makes me really thirsty. I don't care. I apologize about drinking the water the whole time. All of us do this on some level. That is, all of us try to hide our sin on some level. We try to cover it up. Um, we try not to speak about it. Uh, and we're and like I said, we've gotten pretty good at trying to hide it. We've gotten pretty good, at least in, in the short term, of trying to cover that up. You know, we cover up in a lot of different ways, and I'm just going to name a few that I've done in the past, and, and probably most of these um, are true to each of us in this room, with like ways that we try to cover up or hide our sin. You know, the biggest way we try to hide our sin, I think, is just suddenly we don't like to admit to be wrong. You know, this pride rolls up its ugly head and we hide it because, you know what, I don't want to admit to my wife that I've done something wrong, I've sinned against her. So I'll come up with all kinds of reasons not to admit that. If you don't believe me, you can ask her, I'm um, really worse at this. So um, you know, we also get critical or judgmental of others, basically acting like we're better than them. We do it because it makes us feel good, it makes us feel superior. That is, we we have our sin and our sin's weighing down on us. But the way we deal with it temporarily is, is we look at someone else and we go, oh, "I'm not as bad as them." Makes me feel better about myself, just for a moment. We go to great lengths to justify our sin, to justify our guilt by putting to our own needs Again, this is true of me. Um, if someone, if I my wife comes to me with an issue, I've sinned against her, and I, and I will be the first to say. Why would you bring that up to me? Look at I've done this and I've done that. I've done all these good things. How could you dare confront me with my sin? I've done all these things for you. It's just another way of us failing to acknowledge our sin by thinking somehow, other we are good enough. Our sin or our good deeds are good enough to cover up our like sin. And it might make, it might work for a moment, but in the long term, you will still be. Holding on to the burden of that guilt and that shame. Maybe the most classic way we try to cover our sin is to blame others or to minimize the guilt. Right? This goes all the way back, of course, to garden Do you remember Adam and Eve's responses once their eyes were open after they had been forbidden fruit? The responses. The first thing they realized is that they were naked, right? So they covered themselves with leaves. That is, they hid their shame. They hid their sin. They hid their guilt. Not only that, but not only did their sin cause them to hide, to want to hide themselves, they actually tried to hide themselves from God. Right? God finds them where behind the bush, hiding from them, because now their sin has caused them to fear God. It says they were afraid of God, so they hid them, something from from him. When God came looking for them in the garden, he found them hiding in the bushes because they were afraid. Their sin brought in fear. Fear of the relationship with God. Uh, not not even account later we'll see fear of a of relationship with even with each other. Now do you remember God's question to Adam and Eve while they're in that bush hiding? He says, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat?" Of? Now Adam's classic response, which is all of our responses, and all of us do this today on some level, is he turns to God and says, "The woman you gave me." The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I need it. Now, understand what Adam is doing here, right? Adam is not just blaming me. He is blaming me, but ultimately he is blaming God for his sin. He's saying, the woman you gave me, God, this is on you, not on me. You gave her to me. That's on you, not me. Now, of course, whenever we blame him, we're just sinning against another person yet again. When we take our sin and we make it someone else's responsibility, or we blame them for it, we're now just sinning against another person. All of these examples of hiding our sin are just attempts by us to deal with the heaviness of our guilt, the heaviness of our shame. But none of these things are actually giving attention to the real problem that we face. They are really just a distraction, right? We're starting to distract ourselves or maybe even the other person to help us feel good in the moment, or to help us feel good for a brief period of time. But like cancer in the soul, sin consumes and destroys, and we, and will eventually find us out. The heaviness of the guilt, of the guilt that we bear cannot be borne by us. We have to give it to someone else. We need to give it to someone to find relief from our sin, and that someone can't be another person like you and me. That someone can't be another sinner like you and me. Our great God provides great forgiveness for us and it's complete and it's immediate as we see in verse five. Verse five is actually the turning point in this entire Psalm. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David used three different words to describe his confession. First, David acknowledged his sin to God. He went from silence before God to speaking to him directly about his sin. And he simply and clearly stated that what he did was a sin. He didn't try to explain it away. He simply said, I have sinned. Lord, I have sinned. Secondly, he exposed his sin. He quit trying to hide it. Instead, he sat in the the feelings of shame and guilt. Lastly, he confessed his sin to God. Confession is an act of fully casting away our sin, is casting away our shame and giving it to God Himself. Sin deceives us, but confession means that that deceit can be removed. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them. Will find compassion, says the book of Proverbs. One commentator has said that confession is like opening the floodgate of a dam. When there is no confession, the waters pile up behind the dam, creating immense pressures on the wall. But as the floodgate opens, the waters subside and the pressures diminish. Do you see here the entire picture that David has painted for us? We call, and says, look, you call what we did, you call it first and foremost, sin, just as God calls it. We take full responsibility for the sin. We make no attempt to hide it or cover it up. Rather, we expose it before God. Then we take that sin and we pass it away. That is, we give it to God. That is, we lay it at the foot of the cross of Christ. When we do that, we can confidently join David David's joy, when he writes, that God forgave the guilt of his sin. That God, when we lay that sin at the foot of the cross, we then give God that sin and he bears that burden for us. We no longer have to bear it. Psalm 32 comes to an end with three commands of praise. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for glory. Who can respond with such praise? Worship and adoration, as, as they get into the song. It's the righteous ones. It's the upright in heart. It's the happy ones of verse one. It's the blessed, of verse one. You'll experience, it's the blessed experience of forgiveness of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Remember verse one. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. How is it that God Almighty does not count our iniquity against us. He is holy and just, and sin must be accounted for. It must be covered by someone. It can't be covered by us, but it must be covered by someone who is perfect and without sin. In Romans 4, in Romans 4, Paul quotes Psalm 32 in his argument for justification by faith. He says that we are justified by Christ, by faith alone, that is, our sins are imputed to Jesus for judgment on Calvary. And Jesus' righteousness is imputed to our record. That is, that we, we receive the complete, perfect righteousness of Christ in our place. He takes our sin. He gives us His righteousness. We receive that transaction through faith. Psalm 13:2 says the same thing. <clears throat> the Lord no longer counts or imputes sin to us. Jesus becomes for us the sin-bearer. And the heaviness of our guilt and our shame now falls on Him. And Psalm 32, in a sense, is a picture of Calvary for us. This is a description of David, but it can just as easily be a description of Jesus from the cross of Calvary. Jesus hanging on the cross, His body is beaten and broken. He's groaning in pain, He's suffering as the full weight of the hand of God comes to rest on Him. The perfect, holy justice of God is poured out on Jesus, not because of his sin, not because of his shame, but because of our guilt and because of our shame. Jesus willingly takes and bears our sin so that we might be justified, that we might be forgiven and restored in our relationship to God. If you've experienced that atoning sacrifice and covering of your sin, then you should be like David. And rejoice and shout for joy. Rejoice and shout for joy because your sins are forgiven. Your guilt has been lifted up. Christ has borne it for you. You are now free to enter into a relationship made new by God himself and his son. For blessed are those who the Lord does not count their iniquity against them. Now, do you know the depths of Jesus' forgiveness for you? Have you experienced it? Because apart from it, there is no freedom. There is no joy from your guilt and from your shame. So come, I pray, brothers and sisters, come. And don't hide your sin. We all know that we're sinners. We all acknowledge that. So come and lay your sins bare before the cross of Christ allow Him to carry that guilt and that shame for you. Let's, Let's pray. Lord God, we do... We are grateful. We do shout with joy for your provision for us through your son who comes to bear our sin, to give us his righteousness, that we might stand before you cleansed, holy, righteous, that we might rejoice as your people because we've been made new who our Savior, who has loved us and who has died for us, that we might truly have life and freedom from the burdens of the guilt and shame that sometimes so overwhelm us. Lord, come now, you pray, let us lay our sins before you and remind you of your faithfulness and your goodness to us, even as we prepare to take this meal together today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.